let's not be so quick to glance over. Yes, I think about it. Yes, it comes back. Mm -hmm. Even if it's only for a beat, it comes back. Hey there, my name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, aren't very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. Now, we are talking about suicide, so this may not be a good fit for everyone. Please take that into account before you listen. I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to share your story, I'd love to talk. Please reach out. Hello at suicidenoted.com or on Facebook or Twitter at Suicide Noted. And as always, I want to thank each and every suicide attempt survivor who has joined me here on this podcast to talk. Thank you. And to everyone who listens week in and week out, or perhaps this is your first time. Thanks for listening. And thank you for your support. Today, I am talking with Sharon. Sharon lives in Texas, and she is a suicide attempt survivor. Hey, Sharon. Glad we connected. Yeah, me too. Thanks for your flexibility today. Of course, this is a big part of my life. So I make time. Yeah. yeah. I want to be careful how I say this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I like talking about this stuff. Yep. Not like like, but I don't dislike. No, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. You're not averse to it. You don't have an aversion to it. No. Yeah. Do you like talking about it? Yeah. Because I think for me, because like it was so normal for me, um, like the thought patterns were so normal for me from before I could even remember that mm. like, it was a shock to me when I first found out people don't experience this the way that I do. How long back do you go where you were thinking this way, whatever that way is, which we'll talk about, but how long back does yeah. it go? Okay, so this is gonna sound absurd, but like, I don't remember a time where not wanting, like I didn't have the terminology suicide. I didn't have the terminology, you know, I didn't have terminology period, but I don't remember a time thinking I don't want to be here. So like the first time, I think I was in seventh grade, the first time someone um, in my school uh, died by suicide, seeing the reaction of this, they mean like they brought in the counselors and like people were just like bawling. And that was the first time I, I really was looking around and just like, this is normal thinking about this. I mean, it, like the fact that somebody could actually do something about it hit home at that point. But um, just seeing the reaction of how, how devastating and jarring it was, was the first time that I just kind of was like, oh, oh, something's a little different. 12 years old, 13 years old. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I was young. I was a young one. 11 in seventh grade. And were you in Texas? Oh, yes. <laughs> 
So young Shireen, am I saying your name correctly, Shireen? No, it's um, it's Sharon. All right, so Sharon, Sharon. With a little bit more, yeah, there you go. With a little Sharon. bit more like of an yeah. ethnic I, flair. So. <laughs> I was born in uh, uh, South India. My family, we come from a family of travelers. My dad moved the family to Nigeria. They were living in Nigeria. My mother birthed two of my sisters in Nigeria and then was like, listen, this bitch is getting on a plane and birthing one of these heifers in India. And so like she like at eight months pregnant forced her way onto a plane and birthed me in India. And so we immigrated to the States when I was about four. All right, so India, Nigeria, you're born in India. At four years old, you come to the States. And you settle in Texas? We settled in Texas. The family went to like New York, Canada, but like for some reason it was Texas. All right. So Texas. And tell me more about being Indian in America. I think Asian immigrants in general have bought the model minority myth, hook, line and sinker. It's a myth. It absolutely is a myth. Like we were used as like tools to be like, look, they can make it, they start businesses, anyone can in America. And it's like, it's a myth that we bought into. So there's this idea that like, we are supposed to be successful. We are the academically rigorous. We go to school, we get our college education, we become doctors and lawyers and teachers and and we succeed. And how do you spin a narrative of success in a culture that shuns Um, anything that's perceived as weakness that could bring shame to your Mm. family. And so, yeah, it's hard. It's real. It's real hard. When you're 11 and that person, one of your classmates uh, in your life. Yeah. And you are having thoughts that you maybe didn't have a word for, but you realize that you're not necessarily like other people, maybe. Yeah. Uh, Did you have people in your life to talk to? You know, it's funny. The first time I really started talking about, because like any child who goes through life thinking, maybe it would be better not to be here, isn't necessarily in the most idyllic of, um, of, of situations. And I was always really, to the fear of my parents, very transparent about pain. Mm-hmm. Um, about like, and I emoted it. When you grow up in an abusive household, you can have three kids and all three kids are going to react quite differently to abuse. Some of them are like, okay, if I do everything right and perfect, maybe the abuse will stop. So they get the straight A's, they join all the clubs, they academically excel because nobody will know, right? And maybe the abuse will stop. And then you have me, uh, like the children who are like me, who, um, we don't know what the fuck is going on. And all we know is that something is so off Mm -hmm. and something hurts so bad. So when we go to school, it's the one place where we have freedom. And so we emote and we laugh and we talk because at home, you're not allowed to, you know? So we get in trouble and teachers see us as problematic and like all of the different things because you finally have a place where you're safe to be. No one's going to hurt you. Were you in an abusive home? Oh, God, underestimation of the lifetime. I mean, yes, yes, absolutely. Like, yeah, I mean, my house was awful for everybody involved, spiritually, mentally, verbally, physically, sexually abusive. I had two older sisters. Um, They didn't experience sexual abuse. It was only until this past 
May where one of my sisters found out about the, the sexual abuse that I endured um, from my father because she asked me point blank, you know, like for the longest time, I didn't, I didn't talk about it. I talked about it everywhere else. Like once I turned 18, like I was like, I'm going to talk about this. I was sexually assaulted at 18. And at that point, I just realized that like I was spiraling and something was very wrong. And if I didn't talk about it, I just knew it was going to get worse if I didn't talk about it. And it was going to make people uncomfortable. But if I didn't talk about it, I wasn't going to make it. Some mature, I guess, awareness at 18 to realize that that's like a big changer if you can do it. Yeah. I mean, kids of abuse are notoriously mature for their ages, right? Right. Um, They just are (laughs) like, because they've seen shit that they should never have seen. You understand the world in a way in which your rose colored glasses were stripped away. So you see things and you get things, you might not get it and understand it fully, but you see it. The name of the podcast is Suicide Noted. So we will be getting to that thing, but yeah. Uh, with your with your permission, of course. When you say that you were uh, spiraling, like what did that look like? There wasn't really a day in my life until I was like seventeen and decided to move out, where like physical violence was not a part of my existence. Like some pretty brutal physical violence, and I think that when you're around that type of anger, and when you're around that type of violence, and your parent is somebody who is extremely well respected um extremely revered in like the churches and um and in the the workplace and everybody looks at them and your children are smart articulate really polite Mm -hmm. and so everybody's like look these parents must be amazing so like for me at some point that kind of violence penetrated and i became such an angry, angry little person. Um, I got in fights because the type of violence that was visited upon me uh, was brutal. Basically, if somebody were to punch me today, I can take it. I can take a punch pretty, (laughs) pretty well. And my pain tolerance is very high. And I believe this is only an assumption. It's because what I went through was so brutal, your body just sort of normalizes to pain. So when I was violent towards other people, there wasn't like a scale of violence, right? So I turned 18 and I realized, I don't know how else to describe it. There was there was this moment where I had come back to my parents' house and I was sitting in my room and something had happened with my dad. I don't even remember what it was, but I was sitting in my room. I was just so mad and I was just so angry. And this feeling um, came like just across my chest. It just felt like just cold, like just ice cold. And there was this moment where I was, it just like hit me that I was becoming him, Mm. you know? And I was just like, holy shit. And I didn't know how to put the brakes on it, you know? And then I was 18 and I was sexually assaulted and you leave home thinking you're gonna get away from the violence and then more violence happens and you're just kind of like where the hell is there a safe place in this world where where where, like where can i find safety i can go find an apartment i can go find my own place but like 
I go on a date and like, you know, with somebody who's like, I treat people like princesses and you get raped. So when I say I was spiraling, it was just sort of this, like, I was detaching from myself. Um, I was numbing because I was like, it's too much. Um, I didn't realize I was numbing. I would, I was in college. I had dropped out of college for like about a year and a half. Um, and I was bartending and hostessing all over Dallas. Um, and then I finally went back to school and I was going to class and then I was coming back and sleeping. So four hours of my day, I was in class. The rest of the day I was sleeping. And that was the first time like depression fatigue hit me. So I had depression fatigue. I had numbing. I had all sorts of things. Um, and I was just outside of myself, you know? Um, it was just sort of like witnessing myself as opposed to living. And when you're growing up, though, your sisters, your two sisters, they have no idea what's going on or some of the stuff they don't know about. Well, I mean, we were all physically abused. There was definitely a scale. Right. So my dad um, is a, a very well-known teacher. My, my sisters excelled academically. So a lot of our abuse, ironically, stemmed from academics, right? Like, so if I took my math homework down, because he was a math teacher professor, if I took my math homework down for it, because he corrected it, when I was making mistakes, just like the blows were just like raining down. And it was like, if I couldn't get a problem correct, I mean, it was just bad. Like I had hair that was like down to my like waist and he would like wrap his hands like in my hair and just like drag me. Like, so they, they were seeing it. They were hearing it, that abuse, the sexual abuse. No, the sexual abuse took place late at night when people were asleep you know? So like that, they had no clue. They had no clue what was going on as far as that went. The stuff that he did was awful. I mean, awful. And like, you also, you, you take into account the fact that our culture, right, which is one that is very patriarchal and one that says women, like my dad was very quote unquote progressive in a sense that he never believed in like, we have to get an arranged marriage. We have to be married off young. He was like, get your education, go to school, get an education. That was his focus, be financially independent. But like the way in which he went about ensuring that that happened was with a totalitarian brutality. It's an unfortunate thing. And it's something that I'm very, very, very mindful of now with age. I have a tongue that can cut you to pieces you know, and that's a learned ass behavior that I learned from the best of the best, how to destroy someone verbally. That is why I am, if I don't have something to say, you know, like I do not speak in anger. I do not yell. I do not scream. I do not enjoy it. Um, because I know, I know what I'm capable of that's in you. So. All right. So at 18, you have this awareness that if you don't make a change or something, I, I, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, uh, you're not going to make it. Yeah. I'm also assuming at some point, I don't, might be before and or after you attempt suicide. What, what, what was the first one? How, how old were you at that point? A little bit before I was 17 or 17. So this was right when I left home. 
So my dad was, like I said, extremely abusive. And at some point he was like, I'm not going to like correct any of your academic work anymore because he had like this awareness that like, you know, that's when he loses control. And, um, you know, this very altruistic, I'm sure, um, awareness. So it had been, there had been some time where I hadn't been physically brutalized. Like there was a, a reprieve, a brief reprieve. And then something happened. I think like a teacher called and left a message about my, my, my attitude, something. And that, that night was hell. It was just hell. Like it got really, really physically violent. And because I had just had this moment where I could breathe and then it was like, it just happened again. And it was so awful. And both of my sisters were in college at this point. So at this point, I'm very much so alone. I just remember being like, no. <laughs> like, no, I cannot, I cannot do this. I cannot endure any more of this. I, I physically do not want to. Um, and we came from a really religious family and I was very religious, but like at that point I was just like, no. And all I knew this, I mean, like, this is before like Google, um, and, like, you know, like how to like type in, like, how do I do this? All I knew is I had an awareness that if you took pills and I didn't even know what kind of pills to take, all I knew is that my mother is a nurse and works in the hospital. And so we've got a cabinet full of something. And I grabbed, ironically, I, I, I grabbed the quote unquote right bottle of um, Tylenol, which was a big ass bottle of Tylenol, um, like a huge, huge bottle. And I, I don't even, Sean, like the truth of the matter is I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I had no clue, but all I knew is if you took enough, chances are you wouldn't wake up, you know? Mm -hmm. So I didn't know what I was doing. I just remember pouring out what I perceived as a lot and taking them and just, just curling up in bed and being like, I cannot, I cannot wake up tomorrow. Whatever the fuck I did, I didn't take enough. Um, like, I don't think I, I don't even think I came close to taking it up I, to this day. I will not, I will not Google what the, the lethal do dose is. Cause I think like I had a friend who was in pharmacy school who was like, there is a lethal dose, you know, and I, I will not Google it. I will not look it up, but I woke, I woke up and it's, it's weird that I'm getting like emotional about it now. I just remember that feeling of waking up and being like, again, <laughs> you know, like, again, there's no end. Mm. And I couldn't see an end. I went to school that day. And I remember my friend, we went to Sonic for lunch. And we were sitting and I just started crying. And I told her what I had done. And she started crying. She drove this old station wagon of her parents. And she was just crying. And she was just like, take the car. I know my parents, my parents would let you take the car. Like, take the car and just go, just leave, just whatever, just like, we'll find a way, like just, and I just remember crying, just sobbing and being like, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can, like, I don't know what to do. I don't have money. Where do I go? How do I do this? And so like a couple months later, I did end up leaving my house and got a job at a, at a restaurant. And the woman who was there, I had gotten a job at a restaurant and the woman who was there, she just knew something was wrong. And 
we talked and I told her kind of what was going on at home and she co-signed. She co-signed a, a lease for me to move into a home. She knew a person who knew a person and they literally like saved my life and got me out of my house. Yeah, I don't I don't know how. I don't know how I would have survived without that. I don't I think I would have I would have figured out how to do it again mm-hmm. if I hadn't, you know. What did your mom say? My mom is <laughs> it's not a good situation there either. It's not a good situation there either. Um I feel like I outgrew my mom around the time I was 13 years old in maturity. It's real hard. It's real hard when you have a a dad who's that abusive, like that abusive, and you have a mom who hates the fact that it's happening, but then sometimes throws you under the bus because she knows that he'll he'll keep you in control. So if you do something that she doesn't like, she'll start talking at a louder volume and he'll hear and he'll come and regulate. So she used it and and hated it. So it was this gaslighting sort of situation where it's like, well, mom doesn't beat us like this. So she's safer, but she's also not safe. You know, like it's like it, it was just weird. Um, and I remember once when I just remember a really, really awful night where it was like three o'clock in the morning and my dad just was not relenting on this homework that I couldn't I just could I. For some reason, the man kept putting me in fucking math classes that I had no business being in. Like, why the fuck was I in pre-calculus and AP calculus when I, I'm not good at math? You know, like I just, I hated pre-calculus. It's hated. so awesome. What the fuck is the point of it? <laughs> like, what? When in your life are you going to use this shit unless you're an like an engineer? It was just a really brutal night, and my mom finally came out and was like. I just remember her going, if that's the amount of brains she has in her head, like that's the amount of brains she has. You can't beat it into her. There's some wisdom and, there, though. There's some wisdom I, there. Right? And I just remember he was getting more violent and he was getting more angry because he did not like being challenged. And I just remember in that moment thinking, because that night he had beat me so severely that I think I was around 15 or 16. He had beat me so severely that at one point I lost all control of uh, my bladder and I just like urinated like all over myself, like I lost it. And instead of stopping, he made me go upstairs to change and then come back downstairs. So that was the brutal night. So that night when she came out and I noticed that he was getting more and more violent and she was like, I'm going to call the police. And she like picked up the phone and he like tore the phone out of the wall. And I realized at that point, like this, this ship is going to go down and go down fast in a bad way. And I remember me at 15 looking at my mom and saying, go back to your room, close the door. <laughs> this is, it's only going to get worse if you stay. So just like go. And she did. Do you talk to either of them? Oh, yeah. So <laughs> so I'm 38 years old. I was serving overseas uh, in West Africa when COVID hit. I was with the Peace Corps. Um, there was a worldwide evacuation of Peace Corps volunteers. And I came back home and it had been, I hadn't lived at my parents' house since I was 17 years old. It's come very full circle with my with my dad. Like it has been a journey coming to my healing with that kind of brutality. But my dad was diagnosed with dementia while I was serving overseas. And when I came back, because I didn't have a job, um, because the volunteers had been pulled, I became full-time caregiver of my father. Right when I came home, his dementia had taken 
a dive, we are at the place where he cannot be left at home alone. He's unstable. He's incontinent. He's um, he doesn't really, you know, like all the things <laughs> that a person needs help with. Um, so I became my father's caregiver about a year and a half ago. If this isn't a book, there is no book. If this is a book, then books aren't a thing. Okay. <laughs> yeah. If this isn't a book and or movie, and you don't have to take that route, of course, of course, yeah. but then there are no such things as books. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a, my life has kind of been that way. <laughs> so um, I, I would trade it in a heartbeat for a much more normal story. <laughs> I have a friend of mine who dealt with a lot of abuse and we're recently talking. She says, I'm grateful for every part of it. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm like, mm-hmm. okay. I'm not, I, I didn't deal with that kind of abuse, but I don't have that kind of whatever. I'm not yeah, grateful yeah. for certain things in my life. I don't see how it made me the man I am, but some people do. It sounds like, given what you just shared about you wish it could have been different, that you don't feel that way. That's- yeah, no, I think it's bullshit. I think that we are quite capable of becoming and evolving and morphing into the people that are so capable of compassion and kindness and uh, maturity and awareness without having to endure unbelievable amounts of suffering. You will never hear me say, I am so grateful. You know, like I am so grateful. You don't talk that way anyway though, do you? You know, no. Why do we do why would you all of a sudden have an accent like a drawl? <laughs> because I'm from Thailand. Listen, if you get me around the church grandmothers, all of a sudden that <laughs> drawl is gonna come out. But yeah, like I I don't ha- I I don't subscribe to that and I don't believe that. Um, I think that when you go through enormous amounts of suffering, your eyes can, asterisk, can be open to a world that allows you and affords you compassion to understand that at all times you have no idea what the hell someone is going through. But we don't have to fucking endure that to just know that. Sure. You know? Okay. He's probably going to live for another 30 years, by the way. He yeah. probably is. And honestly, um, I, uh, about 10 years ago, 10 or 12 years ago, I was doing a reading. Um, somebody was doing a, a reading for me, a tarot reading. They said, you know, like, your dad's going to be in a prison um, of his own mind towards the end of his life. It is going to keep going for quite some time. So, yeah, I very much so believe that he's going to be around for quite some time. So after you attempted uh, at 17 years old that was over 20 years ago mm-hmm. i'm not much of a math person either but i could i could figure that one out uh was there another one yeah so i, I said I, I told you i was sexually assaulted when i was 18 yeah that was that was real hard because i was at the time i was very religious i was definitely one of those people that was like listen you cannot go below my neck you know like i was just like i was just like because this is the lord's and so like i just was what, very what religion like, are we talking about I was very Christian, um, we, but like a very specific sect of Christianity, which is Seventh-day Adventist. That kind of an extreme? Yeah, <laughs> I would say so. Like there's a hell of a lot of rules and a hell of a lot of, we are the, we are the ones that got it right. You know, everybody seems to, well, I mean, everybody what, seems to think. <laughs> what religion doesn't think that? Exactly. That's what everyone thinks, or it wouldn't be a religion. Exactly. But the context was that you were 
Right. I, I don't even want to use the word conservative because that doesn't seem right, but you know what I mean? Like you were. I was devout. I was devout. Okay. Um, and so like when, when, when that happened, it was such a like, oh my God, you know, I was like, what the fuck is the point of like all of these things that I've been doing to like maintain virtue if it could just be snatched from you, right? If without anything, it can just be taken. Just somebody can walk in and go, that's mine. That's for me, you know? And it was very jarring. And I became extremely numb. I'd had, I'd struggled with eating disorders for a very long time within my life. So like the eating disorders got worse at that time. And so you have like depression that set in shockingly, shockingly going through what I went through in my home. Depression as I know it now, depression as the the entity that I know it so well now um, did not manifest the way it did until that sexual assault. And I think that's because so much of my childhood abuse, sexual abuse had been repressed. And when the sexual assault happened, like that shit just started seeping through the trap, the cracks. Two years um, after my sexual assault, when I was in college and I wasn't, I was sleeping all day, every day. I remember going to bed one night and definitively, definitively going, I will not, tomorrow is my last day. I'm mm. not going to do it. I knew for me, I knew how I was going to do it. And I was like, this time we're not, we're not messing around with like pills. We're not messing around. Like we're going straight to a source. We're cutting that shit off. And we're like, we're going, you know, like we are, we're done. And I went to bed remembering like I had very definitively made that decision. And then I, when I woke up in the morning, it was so potent within me. Like it was so potent, like that I wanted to. And something in my fucking head went, Shadon, this isn't normal, quote unquote normal, whatever the fuck that is. But I was like, Shadon, this isn't normal. Say something, you know, like say something, talk about it. And so I called my sisters and I just said it. I just said it. I was like, I went to bed last night thinking that today I want to kill myself. I haven't changed my mind. I don't know what to do. I, I don't know. I don't know what to do. And of course, my sisters stopped, dropped and rolled. And like they just oh, they did what they do, which is they started prayer circles. <laughs> like, like one sister's in like med school, one sister's in like like living her life in like Boston. And they just like had groups of their friends like stop studying stop whatever and just start praying you know like I like I <laughs> I do believe in energy I'm not a religious person anymore whatsoever um but I do believe in energy and like at the end of the day I think I was interrupted whatever my plan was because mm -hmm. I reached out because I said the words you know I didn't just say I'm struggling I didn't just say mm -hmm. I'm hurting I said, I went to bed last night and I wanted to kill myself and it hasn't gone away. I don't know what to do. I think because it interrupted, um, I had a chance to breathe, you know, because it it felt like all the air, you know, like when you press the air out of something and then you seal it and there's like nothing in there. There's like no air in the thing. That's what I felt like. Just I had no air. And that little moment gave me a breath. So, yeah. So that was this. That was the second quote unquote, intent right. yeah. to do it. What was the, um, what was the plan? 
Well, I went to bed going, I'm not, I'm not taking a chance on anything. I didn't know jack shit about hanging myself. I didn't know, I didn't have a gun, but what I did know that I did have were razors. And like, I, I knew, I knew from people who had talked about it. I knew how to cut. I knew like how not to, you know, like what, how not to cut, you know? And so that was the plan, like just slit your wrist and just just go, you know, mm-hmm. like you're in college, you have a bathroom, like just do it, you know? Yeah. That was whatever, however many years ago. Are you glad that you're n- not dead? I don't know how to exist in that space. <laughs> um, that's a very, yes, I, I, I don't have a feeling one way or another. Here's what I know. There are so many platitudes out there of it gets better. Um. And what I know is that that is a very incomplete and trite thought, mm-hmm. you know, like it's not that it gets better. It is, it can get better in waves. Mm-hmm. But for those of us who dance so close mm-hmm. to death, this is a friend that will visit us again. Mm-hmm. And you can do well for a couple of years, mm-hmm. but I guarantee it, you're going to see its face again. We are a part of a group of folk because people always say, right, they have this concept of suicide that, wow, what a cowardly thing to do. Have you ever been so close? Have you ever, ever danced so close to death that you would have done it? You would have taken your life? Because if you ever have, that is not a coward's game. It is not a coward's game because so many people are so terrified, right? Terrified of, What's the impact going to be on other people? What's the, who's going to find me? What's going to happen in the hereafter? Whatever the fuck, you know, like there's so much fear with anything definitive, you know, most of us can't even fucking commit to like a car. Okay. Like a person, like you think like it's easy to commit to like ending your life. It's not, it's not. And so like, there's this idea that is so false that it is a cowardly thing to do most of society does not have that in them, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to follow through in it. You might have the thoughts, but for those of us who have been there up close and personal to it, it's not a coward's game, mm-hmm. you know, and it is very serious and it takes a lot of determination. The opposite of suicidal is you have peace, you have calm. It's not happiness. It's not joy. It's because all of that is temporary. All of that is so temporary and fleeting. And we've sold this message to people. It gets better. And what is the message of it gets better? The message of it's get, it gets better is it gets good. It gets, you know, like it gets better. So like there's light and there's joy out of this darkness. And the truth of the matter is that's not life, yo. That's not life, you know? Who exists in this like microcosm of a world in which you are just, there's just so much joy. That's not the world and that's not life. And I think people, I'm going just from my own experience here, that, that there, there are these messages people send that say, are you happy yet? Because I get a lot of messages or uh, people make assumptions that, oh, wow, that like that podcast you have is like doing well, however you measure that, right? Yeah, no, it is. I mean, a lot more people are hearing it. That's what I want. That's great. Which must mean, no, it doesn't mean shit. 
It all it means is that more people listen to the podcast. Stop. It doesn't mean I'm happier. It no. doesn't mean I'm better. Yes, yeah. if I were homeless and now I'm not homeless, there, there are some like basic needs that I can meet that help my life. You know, like I can get food. I'm not suggesting like there's a difference of having food and not having food. The conversations mostly stop. Like, oh, wait, Sean, this other area of your life, you're doing what appears to be well. Sure. So that, no, it doesn't mean anything other than that. And th- no, that's no. a hard thing for people to understand and a hard people for them to accept because I get the sense, well, Sean, you're just never going to be happy. And I'm going to say, yep, you're probably right. And is that not okay? Does that yeah. mean that we can't talk? Does that mean we cannot ha- be friends? Does that mean that every- our re- relationship is predicated on me being okay? Because if it is, fuck it. We're not going to have a relationship. And that's very hard to find. It's weird. Is the only life that is meaningful one that is happy? You can have meaning in life. You can have a meaningful existence and not be happy. Correct. You know? And like, and the thing is, Sean, like for me, I'm someone whose career has done very well. I am so lucky. I have headed national organizations. I've headed, like, I got into like executive directorship when I was 20 fucking five. Like, God bless the person who thought I was capable of doing that, but like, I really shouldn't have. But like, my career has done well. I have had beautiful relationships. I have friendships in my life in which the darkest parts of myself are not off limits for seeing and talking about. I have shit in my life that is so good. That doesn't mean, that is doesn't indicate that all is well in my soul. Mm-hmm. You know, like that, that's not what that means. It doesn't matter. You can have wonderful, beautiful things around you and still existence in and of itself is so much harder than we ever allow people to speak about. It is so hard. This life, when you feel, (laughs) when you see, when your eyes are open, my God, there's so much, it's so overwhelming. You know, there's a reason why like every school of like religion and thought and why there's like a million different meditation books on like how to get Zen. Because like intrinsically we know and understand that like, life is difficult. Life is hard. Life is like this, these ocean waves of emotions at all times, just washing over us. And sometimes we're like, Ooh, this is fun. Ocean waves. And other times we're drowning in it. There's a reason people chase the art of being Zen because it's a lot to navigate these ups and downs. Yeah. What country in Africa are you in? The Gambia. So here's Senegal and like Gambia is like smack dab in the middle of it. I did want to know what was your work because you had mentioned that you were working in restaurants and but then obviously things changed. So while I was in college, um, I, I slung some beers um, and served some food uh, and that I love that. I love I can always go back to that. I don't I never have a prideful bone in my body that makes me go, oh, I can't do that again. I absolutely can. But I eventually got into surprise, surprise domestic violence prevention and sexual assault prevention. (laughs) And so like, yeah, so I did work around, um, you know, survivors of torture, um, childhood sexual abuse prevention. I worked for a a national domestic violence um, organization. 
and yeah, and local and local DV organizations. And then in 2017, I was so tired of being numb. Mm. I was so tired of feeling disconnected from myself. And I was like, something's got to change. Um, you've done as much work as you can on your mental health. I really am on much better terms with my father, surprisingly. I carried myself as far as I could go, but I was still struggling and disconnected. So I left my job in 2017 mm -hmm. and I took time off from 2017 until 2019 to go around the US and I pivoted my career to agriculture. And um, I woofed, I like started volunteering on farms around the US to learn agriculture and be outside and have my hands in the dirt. I'm a very, very femme woman, but I love my hands in dirt. Um, and I love working and I love growing. I used to have the black thumb of death. I don't anymore. I took two years off to take care of my my brain um, and myself and do whatever the hell I could to be healthy and to face myself again. Because there 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 is a lot there is there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of um, hurt that I have yet to just sort of tap into, but I was becoming more and more numb. And I recognize that space very well. So that was two years of working on myself, yeah. And you were in the Peace Corps. I was in the Peace Corps and life was beautiful and it was amazing and I fucking loved it. I was like, whenever, cause whenever you're in the Peace Corps, they say like, you get an interview, like where, where would you like to be placed? What kind of city, big city, small city, big family, small family. And I was like, if I don't see another American for two years, that'd be great. So put me in the most remote part of Africa with no connection to volunteers. I'll be a happy, happy camper. So I was really happy. Um, and then half a year into my service, um, the plug got pulled with COVID and we mm -hmm. were yanked out. We came back to the States and then I was full-time caregiver of my father. Were you doing agricultural stuff there or uh, violence prevention? Agricultural? No, no, I was I was agricultural, but I did start a, a women's girls group that was a film club that talked about, like I surveyed the girls in the village um, and was like, what are the things that y'all are interested in? What are the things that y'all want to talk about? And you get girls talking. I don't care what country you're in. They're just like, this is what I want to talk about because like women are, women are repressed all over the world. So you get to get them into a place where they can talk um, and they're going to talk. So I started a film club where they could see videos of kids from all over the world um, in similar, similar circumstances, just different types of villages, um, but who were accomplishing things that everybody said that they couldn't. You must miss them. Oh, I, you know, I, to this day, I don't even know how to talk about it. Like leaving and being pulled out is a grief. I don't even know how to convey, mm -hmm. you know, question. These are short answers. This is the short answer time. Why do you yeah, listen yeah. to this podcast? Cause we don't deserve to be alone. Why did you choose to talk to me today? Because we need to normalize these conversations. My God. I love this game now. Um, <laughs> I love the short thing. Will you try to end your life ever in the future, do you think? Probably. Um, how often do you ideate, however you define that? Quite regularly. Twice I've used psilocybin. Psilocybin helps. Uh, but yes, I ideate regularly. Short. I was my next question is what helps? I swear, <laughs> I, I, I'm, like, I'm looking. Look, look. So yeah, psilocybin helps. Um, music helps. I'm very, very mindful. Um, I want to say that with huge, huge warning signs around it. It is not for everyone. 
Um, but psilocybin has been very helpful. I don't do microdosing. I do like a macro large... motherfucking dosing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like Terrence McKenna heroic dose kind of um, dosing. Right. Do you believe in God? I believe in the universe, and I believe in our interconnectivity, and I believe in energy. What is one myth you'd like to dispel? This, we're still in the short answer part of this show. I didn't say this was going to be fair. <laughs> one, the concept of it gets better. It's, it's trash. It's okay. trash. And we need to, we got to eradicate the fuck out of that. Okay. Um, because even as survivors, we are so quick to say that shit. You know, like, and I, I hear it and I'm just like, y'all, like, I know that this is your experience, but like, it's a dangerous, dangerous thing to say. And mm -hmm. we got to get better at saying it, um, whatever the fuck we say. How many people in the world know that you tried to end your life one or two times? Um, I'm very, very open about it. Um, my siblings do know about it. Um, my parents do not because why um but every single person who um i have ever dated every single person who i am friends with it is something that i do talk about how many people do you have in your life and this is kind of related i suppose well right right now in your life where you could talk about difficult things and feel at the end of that conversation like okay they heard what i had to say they engaged mm -hmm. me in a way that was helpful or useful um, I'm one of the luckiest motherfuckers in the world because every day I'm one of them that's in my life. Wow. That's probably why they're in your life. Yeah. It's I'm... a small circle. It's a small, small yeah. circle, but they are every damn one of them. Nice. All right. So let's talk about myths. The, the whole, like all of that shit that's like suicide is a temporary solution to a, oh no, a permanent solution to a temporary. No, stop it. It yeah. is not temporary you know the shit is not temporary and even if you are somebody who attempted and you moved past it if you were to ask of which i'm sure you do uh, and i've heard you do it um how like do you think about it they might say yeah but i but it moves pretty quickly but here's the thing let's not pause let's not be so quick to glance over yes I think about it. Yes, it comes back. Mm -hmm. Even if it's only for a beat, it comes back. Suicide, I would I think that people would be shocked to find the number of people in high-level leadership positions who navigate this shit and who never take when I when I took time off in 2017 to take care of my mental health, I was at the peak of my career. I was in my mid-30s. That is not the time a woman should be taking time off of work in this society because to come back closer to your 40s to get into the workforce as a woman you are it is an uphill battle and there are too many people suffering and too many people in this who our society has not created a space for them to heal so there's a lot more people who are experiencing this than who are talking about it totally true for sure did you when you said you were numb did that imply also drugs uh, alcohol, drugs? You know, surprisingly, um, I am one of the most straight edge motherfuckers that you will ever <laughs> find in your life. Right. Now, I, now, I, now, I, now I dislike you. Trust me, it makes dating quite difficult um, uh, because if you're just like, ah, 
Yeah. Like I don't, I don't really like, if you were to ask me how many times I drink and I could tell you on less than one hand in a year, right? how okay. many times I drink, you know, and I all don't right. really do anything else. Yeah. When you were going through all the stuff from teenage years on, did you ever see counselors, therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists? No. Okay. So I am a very cerebral person. And from a very young age, um, I would see things and I would deep dive into it on my own. So I would be like, I'm having an emotion and I'm telling you, Sean, I don't know how or why I was like this from a young age. I don't have an explanation for it, but I would have an emotion and I would go, why am I having that emotion? Is there something else that's going on that's informing this emotion? Am I, is this emotion genuine or is it being coming from something else? Am I upset about them? Like that's literally how I was. Not on macro doses of shrooms. <laughs> no, no. I only, the first time I did shrooms, I was like 32. So like, no, but you sort of self counseled for lack of a better word. Yes. And I do think therapy is trash. Right. Sorry. I, I, Sorry. I want you to speak. The truth yeah. here on suicide noted. So it sounds, and I'm guessing here, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, of course, yeah. you did not take any psychotropic meds, meds for anxiety, yeah. depression. The reason I ask is I, I did some stuff abroad and I couldn't get my meds at the time I was taking it, made it very difficult. So you were in the Gambia that you didn't need to do that because you weren't on meds. No, here's the God's honest truth. I always knew that I had aspirations of doing international development work. I always knew that that would come with uh, working with, states and governments, you know, like governmental organizations, it is damn near impossible when you have mental health struggles to make it through because they'll document it. You're done. Exactly what you just said. Yeah. And also for exactly what you just said, there's no way they were going to send me to the middle of the bush in West Africa. There's no way I was going to get those. They're just the meds, you know? So my whole life. No. All right. What are your days like? So Caretaking for my dad was a mind fuck. And not just because my dad was an abusive fuck who did all these things in in my life. Not just because of that. Anybody who is caretaken for somebody who has a cognitive degenerative disease, it is a mind fuck. Mm. You are very much so tied to home. And that's it. Because like, I'm a very, I do like my solitude. Listen, COVID was not hard for me as far as not seeing people. I really relished time away. For the last year, it was caretaking, 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 24-7, around the clock. And then I trained a full-time caregiver to come in twice a week. And then this past June, she comes in four days a week, which freed up my time. And with that free time, I started applying for positions and jobs and interviewing. Um, I'm starting my consulting business on the side. Um, What are you consulting? I do. I do a lot of business consulting. So like I've mentored women in their careers, like since I was 28, 29, you know? Um, So I've been mentoring women and helping women negotiate salaries because many women don't negotiate salaries and, um, and having, and being leaders. Um, I also do, I've been doing diversity and equity work since you could get fired for talking about it. Mm. And so, um, so what my consulting business does is I um, help organizations who actually say they want like the lip service of like, we want diversity and equity. Like, how do you actually do that? Mm-hmm. How do you actually like go from forward facing talking points to internally revamping your work? If there's somebody out there who hears this and there will be 
who is considering suicide? This is a tough and arguably loaded question. And you don't know them. And if you've heard the podcast, you know, I typically ask this question. Do you have anything you could say to them? I don't know if you're going to like this answer. I'd like honesty. Okay, I'll be honest. I mean, because this, I think, goes back to that myth. You just reminded me of the myth that I was ah. um, talking about. I come from the school of thought that if somebody wants to choose to end their life, they should be allowed to end their life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think the saddest part of suicide mm -hmm. is the fact that people have to do it alone. Mm -hmm. They have to face that choice mm -hmm. in solitude, mm -hmm. with fear possibly, and alone, and alone with such uncertitude. And in this life, we deserve the dignity of choosing our exit. And I am lucky. I am a lucky, lucky bitch because I have friends and we have had this conversation. My friends and I have had this conversation because I'm not the only one that struggles with suicidal ideation. We really support each other through it. But I have had the conversation with every single one of my friends. If this is an option, mm -hmm. if, this is, if this is where you are, don't do it by yourself. You deserve to have someone holding your hand. You deserve to have someone telling you that you tried your fucking hardest, mm -hmm. you know, and you don't deserve to be alone. I don't have a problem with that. Um, <laughs> I do wonder in some states if you can go to jail for that. Not that it, I would. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm sure you could. I'm like, listen, like legalized suicide is not something that is a reality um, in all states. So the yeah. last question, and then I'll open it up to anything else you want to add, and then I'll thank you, and then we'll go about our days. All right, so now the person who's listening doesn't want to end their lives. Or maybe they do, but it's really good for the person who is in a position of support. That's all you get. What do you say to them? The person who's supporting someone who is? Yeah. 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 I think we live in a world in which we have internalized this message of like, people's shit is just too much. It's too much for us. You can hold space for someone. There are ways in which you can hold space for someone without it just derailing your whole ass life in the way that like we think we have this concept of like, mm -hmm. if I hear this too much, or if you talk about it too much, like I just can't, you don't have to have a goddamn solution for anything. Mm -hmm. Nobody came to you for the mystery of the answer to life or how to <laughs> keep life. Right. No, that's right. not why anybody came to you. That's what Google's you know? for anyway, dude. Exactly. There are enough things out there, enough books out there, enough whatever out there that some, that you can direct someone to if that's what you think they need. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, there's a quote, there's a saying that one of the most precious things that you can ever, ever give to anyone is to be a witness to their life. Mm -hmm. And our lives are not pretty. Our lives are not clean and tidy and Instagrammable. Our lives are so complex. It's okay for someone to have and hold complexities that you don't understand. Mm. Like I said, no one's looking for you to have a goddamn answer. Just hold space. And if you can't talk about it and you don't have the quote unquote capacity to um, talk about it, tell them, hey, I'm doing some stuff. Would you like to come over to my house? You can like watch a movie. You can read a book. You can journal. I'm going to be doing my own thing, but come to my place, sit on my couch, be around me. Don't be alone. You know, like you don't have to interact. You don't, just be present and you don't have to do a goddamn thing to be.
be present. Fold your damn laundry, watch a movie, who cares? But show up. People deserve to be seen. <laughs> yeah. Of a thousand people, or maybe hundreds, a better number, that hear that, fewer than five will do it. Yeah. When people say to me, like, and it, it doesn't happen much because people are astoundingly not curious. Like, what have, what have you learned? I'm like, just that's like the thing that you, what you just said, that's the thing. Of all the things I've learned, and I didn't really learn it, it was just more of a reminder in a year and a half of doing this, that's it. I have a different way of saying it. I'm a little bit more aggressive. And if you heard the podcast, my way is like, yeah. number one, shut the fuck up. Yes. Because I can't stand the th- I can't stand the word listen. Not that I have a problem with the word listen. It's that clearly nobody knows what the fuck that means and you don't want to do it. So here's something much more tangible. Listening is a little bit tricky to measure. What I can measure is if you're talking. Because you can't do the other stuff if you're yapping away. Ironically, the man who talks a lot is saying this, I know. Until you can do that, man. Hmm. I don't know. But we like to talk. Yeah. And it's really tricky because you got people, maybe you're one of them. They get paid a huge amount of money to talk well and eloquently, put their ideas together and communicate them verbally. Uh, We get huge amount of money, millions of dollars to solve problems and fix things. Millions, right? We need those people in the world. We compensate them. Huge. Doesn't really work in this this sphere, though. So how do you turn that off? I'm being fucking rewarded for this skill set. Now you're telling me not to do that? And I'm like, yep. I think, like I said, I think that we got to start talking about this because we're dying. Yeah. We're dying and we're sad and we're alone. You know, many, many, many of us who have these thoughts are alone and we don't deserve that. We don't deserve to be alone in the things that people find hard to look at. So thank you. Yes, my pleasure. Thank you. I'm glad you found the podcast and then reached out. I think that you've tapped into something that is your purpose and your meaning and like, oh, random note, your um, your intro and outro music is the only intro and outro music that I can listen to. Really? Usually, it's so good. Excellent choice. It's very well done. Um, and you have a gift for this. And Thanks. Yeah. yeah, thanks, Sean. All right, have a good day, Sean. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support and special thanks to Shedden out in Texas. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to share your story, I would love to talk. Please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com or on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. And I know I say this a lot, but if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review this podcast. It really helps people find it. Thank you so much for that. That is all for episode number 77. Stay strong. Do the very best you can. I'll talk to you soon.